chapter 3. So last week, we looked at Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4, or rather uh, 5 to 17. And so we'll be continuing in our series in Colossians, finishing at chapter 4, verse 1. So Colossians 3, and I'll just start at verse 1, actually. Rules for holy living. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in, the, in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And now follows our text for the sermon. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, 
and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we read in the first four verses of Colossians, chapter 3, we learned about setting our minds and our hearts on things in heaven. We are always to be looking to Christ. When we are oriented towards him, this then affects how we live our daily lives as well. As we read in Colossians 3, verse 17, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so doing everything in the, the name of Jesus includes our relationships with other people. Since our hearts are set on Christ in heaven, and he is ruling us by his spirit, then none of our relationships can be exclusive, excluding Jesus Christ. They must include him because he is our Lord in heaven. And so our theme this morning, summarizing verses 18 to chapter 4, verse 1, is that Christ who is in heaven is Lord in our daily lives. And we're going to see this first as we look at marriage, the relationship between a husband and a wife, and then second, the family, the relationship between children and parents, and finally, the work, the relationship between a worker, a servant, and their master or their manager and boss. And so these three relationships are basic, right? They're vital to society. And this is why you have Greek and Roman and Jewish writers before Paul giving these household codes that deal with these relationships. And it's why in our day and age as well, there's so much attention given to how we educate, how we raise our children. This is why these sort of issues like schools are at the forefront of, you know, the culture wars, people might say. But there's also much attention given to uh, safe working conditions and also romantic relationships. People flock to teachers like Jordan Peterson to hear their advice on these things. Advice on how to live well in your marriage, how to raise children, and how to succeed in the workplace. And God cares about what we do here on Sunday and about what we believe, but he also cares about these basic relationships, our daily lives. You see, he created Adam and Eve having a harmonious marriage. It was a good thing. And they would have trained their children, raised them up in this perfect life in the ways of the Lord. And they also would have worked joyfully without toil. However, all these relationships in marriage, in family, and in the workplace, they all became broken. Satan tried to... to caused strife within all these relationships. And so sin affected all of them deeply. He does, sin does affect them all deeply, as you all know. But by the Holy Spirit, we have been reborn and recreated. 
as God's redeemed children, as we look to Christ in heaven and the Spirit works in us, we begin to live like Christ in these basic three relationships. And so Paul begins to instruct us in how being united to Christ affects these relationships. And he begins with the building block of life, marriage. It's where all life began. Human society only continues because of this foundational relationship. Out of marriage flows family, children, the household, and therefore also work and production. And all of us here are only here because of a man and a woman. And most people, most people will get married. Most people want to get married. They, they pursue it. And even though there are contemporary issues making it more difficult to find a spouse, most people inside and outside the church, they, they want to get married. They desire it. And they make plans to find a spouse. Right? This is a natural created good that most people struggle and pray for. And in our text, Paul first addresses wives. Now, living in the 21st century, we might not realize just how extraordinary this actually is. Paul doesn't tell husbands, as many of the ancient philosophers would have, how to make sure their wives submit. Rather, by directly instructing the women of the church, we see that in the Christian community, women have always had full, complete membership. They have equal dignity, worth, as any other person in the Christian church. And by instructing the women, Paul's also showing that they have what we might call moral agency. Moral agency. They have their own personal responsibility and duties like everyone else. And in verse 18, if you look there, we see the duty God gives to wives. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Well, what is this responsibility to submit to your husband? Well, it's a duty, it's a responsibility that a woman takes on at marriage. If you're a wife, you vowed to love and submit to the man standing across from you. You were both joined into this wonderful and special relationship. And it's a relationship and a responsibility that a woman takes on voluntarily. It's a duty she has for her husband and for him alone. This means you have accepted this man and you submit now to his authority. As we see in Genesis and in the New Testament... God created the man to be the head, the leader of the marriage. And so wives are to recognize this. They are to look to and support their husband as their head. Now this doesn't mean that a wife has to do whatever her husband says. We know that tyranny is a sin. All human authority is limited authority. And neither does this mean that the wife is somehow less valuable than her husband. In fact, Scripture actually says the woman is the glory of man. If the man has a special place as the head, then the woman also has a very special place as the glory. And so the Spirit is calling wives to recognize what God says in His Word and as He's revealed in creation 
that they are to submit and love their husbands as their own head. So since you have been saved, since you've been recreated in Christ, wives are to live, you're, you're supposed to live your life in this responsible freedom, taking up your task as the wives, wife of your husband. And then in verse 19, we read about the husband's duty, his responsibility to the wife. We read there in verse 19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is the duty all husbands have for their wives. Right? There's no excuse, well, I've fallen out of love, or it was merely a practical marriage, or it was merely a, an arranged marriage even. Every marriage comes with the exact same duties. Husbands promise to love their wives when they get married, and it's something they must continue to work on. But what does it mean specifically to love one's wife? Well, it's to keep their, their interests at heart, their needs, her bodily, her emotional, her spiritual means in mind. And it's a, it's a sacrificial kind of love. As Ephesians says, it's a sacrificial love that lays down its life as Christ did for the church. It's a love that is tender, tender towards the wife. And we see that all leadership, no matter in what sphere of life, but especially within the marriage, all leadership is to be governed by this deep kind of love. Paul also gives the the husbands the command to not be harsh with their wives. This is the opposite of the love they are called to have. Other translations will say, don't be bitter towards them, to your wife. Husbands aren't to become resentful to their wives. They aren't to be dissatisfied with the kind of wife they now have. And the reason is that this would actually be bitterness towards God, the God who gave you your wife. Rather, as Proverbs and the Song of Songs teaches us, Husbands, we are to delight in the wife of our youth, the wife that God has given us. To be harsh towards them is to have a tone or speech, an attitude that looks down on the wife, that makes snide remarks at them for being the weaker vessel, being who God made them to be. And really, we see that this is then a failure, a failure to believe God's word that they are our glory. And so Christ calls husbands to put off harshness and to put on love toward your wife. Now, because of sin, because of brokenness, it can be difficult for a Christian husband and a Christian wife to fulfill these duties to one another, to live as the gospel calls them to live, Wives, they struggle to submit to their husbands. Husbands struggle to love their wives. I'm sure we can all imagine a situation where you get into a fight, where your spouse has offended you, and our heart's immediate response can be to lash out at them, 
to give them a tit for tat. We want to retaliate against them. They did this to me, so I'm not going to show them love. I'll respond to them in kind. But Christ calls us to something completely different. He calls us to take up our duty. Now, this isn't to be walked over by the other spouse, whether it's a wife or a husband, but rather it's a duty to love and submit through those difficulties according to Scripture. So wives, when your husband comes home and he's having a cold or he's being withdrawn or he has a combative attitude, as his wife, don't react in kind, but in submission and love, guide him back. Draw him back to Christ through his word. Bring the healing of the gospel to him. In a gentle and in a humble spirit, point him to Christ. Or husbands, when your wife is stressed or is acting quarrelsome, don't flee, don't avoid, and don't also fight, don't lash out in harsh anger. Rather, take up your calling to love. Let the peace of Christ keep your own heart steady so that you can shower her with the word of God. As her leader, draw her out of that stressful cycle and point her to look outside herself to Christ who is in heaven, to the big picture, past her current circumstances. Point her to the Christ who is taking care of her as her Lord. These are very simple, but they are also very powerful ways that Christians can be Christ-centered as they work out the love and peace of Jesus in our marriages. Now in our second point, we see what, that Christ is Lord in our family relationships, specifically between children and parents. Let's look at verse 20 there. Verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. We see that Paul addresses the children just as he did the children in Colossae. We see something striking again. First, that Paul is addressing children directly. So if you're a young person, young child here, Paul is speaking to you directly. He's not talking to your parents. The Spirit's not telling your parents to make sure their kids do this or that. No, Paul is talking directly to the children. The Spirit is saying, I've got a task for you, young child. And second, Paul is treating them like every other member of the church. They too are part of the body of Christ. Many churches these days, they have separate worship services for children. It's rare that they'll have children as we do here in, in the service. And rarer still, however, will they baptize and address children as members of the church. But here we see the Spirit clearly showing that children are part of the church. They're full members with their own duties, their own responsibilities. 
Do you realize that, young kids, this morning? Children, do you know what a fireman's job is? A fireman's job, what is it? It's to put out fires. Just like the fireman has a job, you too have a job, a very important one. It's to listen, to learn from and obey your parents. When they tell you to help them by doing chores, remember that this is a job that Jesus has given to you, to listen and obey your parents. And it can be hard at times, can't it? Because our sinful hearts, we want to disobey mom and dad. Dad says to go clean up the toys or come inside. But we don't really want to, and so dad has to tell us a bajillion times before we actually obey. Well, children, that's a sin. That's a sin. And the Bible says that the wages of sin, the payment, if you don't do your job properly, is death. But the good news, children, is that Jesus obeyed his Father in heaven perfectly, even when we didn't. He obeyed his Father so perfectly that he even died on the cross. And Jesus did this to save you and I from our sins and from death. Isn't that just incredible? But if Jesus did that for you, doesn't that make you want to obey your parents like he did? You probably know this song. Your parents have probably sung it to you. Jesus loves me. Well, if Jesus loves us and died to show it, then don't you want to show that you love him as well? Well, children, you can show Jesus your love by obeying your parents right away after only being asked once. It's a tall task, but it's one that you can do by the Spirit. That is how we can show our love to Jesus. So starting today, show your love for Christ by obeying mom and dad as much as you can. And when you forget to, when you don't obey right away, make sure you apologize. Make sure you ask forgiveness, trusting that Jesus died for you, that Jesus loves you and forgives you of all your sins. So boys and girls, God has given you a very special task, a very special responsibility. It is so beautiful and wonderful when children obey mom and dad. It pleases God when we do that. And so remember that just like the fireman has to put out fires, so you have an important responsibility to obey your parents. And next, the Spirit of God tells us, fathers, our duties to our children. Let's look at verse 21. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Now, Paul seems to address fathers specifically because as the heads of the family, they have the first responsibility. And in a society where there is much fatherlessness, this is important to stress. If you want to look up the statistics, it, they prove themselves how detrimental it is 
to have no father training the children. Fathers are so important to the spiritual health of a home. But moving from that, it's obvious that this teaching is also for mothers as well. And even broader, we could say it's also for teachers, if you're a teacher, and others who help parents train up children. But what does it mean to not embitter your children? Well, we could use other words like do not provoke, don't make them resentful, don't stir them up, agitate them, don't nag them or be overly severe, don't rouse them to anger, don't be unreasonable, don't scorn their best efforts, don't belittle them, don't be overcorrecting every little fault. I was talking to someone a few days ago about one of the pre-marriage counseling classes they had with a pastor about training children. And in the discussion, they talked about how parents should discipline children for sins, not for making the parent annoyed. You know, sometimes as parents, when we're busy, it's easy to get moody or irritable. Just seeing the children laughing around us can just make us irritated. But parents, we have to resist lashing out. Otherwise, we'll become like a force of nature, a tornado that our kids just try to avoid whenever we're, they could tell we're in a bad mood. Rather than being a, something like a steady tree that they know they can trust and that will be consistent. And we know that God, our Father, He isn't like, He is not irritable like that. God the Father, He doesn't lash out at us, nor does He treat us overly strictly as His children. He knows the weaknesses of our humanity. He deals patiently with our shortcomings. He doesn't come down hard on every little failing. He has mercy and grace for His covenant people even as he corrects them and disciplines them. And we can see this throughout the Old Testament. And so as parents, we need to remember that discipline should never be separated from discipleship, discipling children in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has given us these children, as we sing in Psalm 127, as a gift. We have a duty to disciple them to shepherd their young hearts, to trust and follow Christ. And so we don't want to discourage them from that, make them feel they can't make mom and dad happy. And the best way to parent your kids is to always keep your eyes on Christ. Keep what God has done in Jesus central. When discipling kids, we have to remember what God is doing in their life. We have to remember that God is the one working in them and ultimately the only one who can work in their hearts. And so when we forget God who is above, we tend to make ourselves the top dog. And so all sorts of misery flows from that. Either we can become, feel discouraged because they aren't turning out the way we want because we think that we are in control, 
or we can become oppressive parents because we think that we have to make everything perfect. But we have to remember that in our family relationships, Jesus is the one who is on top. He is the Lord of this relationship. And so we have to keep the gospel central to how we disciple our children. And finally, point three, being united to Christ by faith, it also affects our work relationships. First, we'll look at a servant or a slave's relation to their master or their boss. If you look there at verse 22 to 25, the Spirit says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does, not, who does wrong will re, be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. The servants, the slaves in the congregation of Colossae, they receive the longest treatment concerning the duties we have. And this is likely because, probably likely because in the early church there were many slaves. And it's also perhaps the trickiest of the relations. Slaves or indentured servants, they made up a huge population in Rome and in its empire. Now in our day we don't have the same slave system like they did. But the situation Paul is addressing, it also applies to our daily work relations between a worker and a manager, between an employer and an employee. While back then they didn't have the choice with who they worked for, we freely enter into a work relationship, a working contract with an employer. And Paul tells workers, employees, that our duty in our work is to work hard and from a good heart. The reason is that people 2,000 years ago in Rome, just like today here in Surrey, workers so easily fall into the habit of only working when the boss is looking or only working hard when it will make them look good to get, the bo- to get in the boss's good books. But Paul says that this is the old and sinful way of working, working for the self only, working apart from Jesus Christ, our Lord. But the Spirit tells us that since Christ has bought us with his blood, has given us a new life, we are his. He is our master, our boss, our employer forever. And he has an an eternal inheritance and reward wages prepared for us. So as his new humanity, as his new servants, we have to fulfill the command to be fruitful. Whether we are building a house, whether we're cleaning a house, or whether we're selling that house, we have to do all of that work honestly, with a good work ethic, even if our boss is bad and we don't 
feel like it or no one will notice us. And the reason is because God delights in our service to him. Everything you do, whether it's changing the fifth diaper of the day or whether it's building a high-rise, all of it is spiritual work and service to God. God looks down on you and he cares about you and what you do. Paul says that whoever cheats in his work or cuts corners, even if no one else catches you, God will notice and will repay. But on the flip side, if we work as for the Lord in heaven, even if no one else notices, even if we are persecuted for doing a good job, God will actually bless and gift you for your good work. Finally, Paul addresses the masters and he tells them their duties, their responsibilities in 4 verse 1. He says, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, some of you here may be business owners or you have positions where there are workers below you. Well, Paul says that it's your responsibility, your duty to pay people fairly, to provide them a fair share for the work they do. You see, just like workers can easily exploit their employers, so too employers can exploit their workers. And so God calls the owners, the managers, to take responsibility and making sure that workers have, for instance, a safe working environment. That you're not sending them to the job with faulty tools or without proper training. You also can't work them to the bone as if they're ex- expendable tools. We have to treat everyone with dignity as an image bearer in Christ. Christian bosses and managers should take personal responsibility to care for and treat those under them fairly. They too, the workers, have a bodily and spiritual needs. This is why bosses shouldn't make people work seven days a week. They need time to care for their families, to work in the churches, to attend worship. And your employees, they should be able to trust you as well. And the reason masters must treat their workers fairly, doing right by them, is because, once again, Jesus is Lord of all. Some bosses and school teachers, or even professors and teachers, they they can treat their, their workers, their students, as if the only thing going on in their life is this particular class or job. But people who are over others in work or school, we need to remember that they are not the end-all, be-all. God is above us. Jesus Christ is reigning over them just as he reigns over the workers. We are all on a level field before Christ. And so the CEO, he should have no pride, for all are equal before God. And our Lord, he doesn't look or treat people differently because of their varying social positions. 
A Christian business owner can make a big difference in their worker's life because they can reveal to them something of Christ's good rulership. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of this, we should actually take pride in our daily roles. Your daily duty, whether you're a son or a daughter, a child, or a mother or a father or a teenager, a husband, a wife, whether you're a boss, a laborer, these duties you have are more important than being the butler for the king of England. Because all these tasks are done before the face of God and for his glory. And so looking to Christ in heaven, we serve him in all we do, in our marriage relationships, our families, our jobs. We do it all before the face of Christ. He has freed us from death and given us life eternal, so let us live our lives for him as his servants. Let us make sure the world sees and knows what it means when we confess that Christ is our Savior and our Lord and King. Amen.